This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. everybody to wrestling omakase it is episode number 240 and this week i am pleased to be joined by a returning guest hello again matt hey john nice to talk to you again yeah so you were on for the halloween havoc retro roulette so uh with another wcw retro roulette here i figured who better than matt who <laughs> just just like can't uh, wcw reference there at the canyon I was going to say, as a huge fan of Canyon, I really appreciate that (laughs) reference. But uh, yes, he's not on the episode, though. We didn't get any. (laughs) No, unfortunately not. No Canyon matches. Uh, But yes, we're back for another Retro Roulette, this time around Starcade, our first time ever doing Starcade. And the randomizer, we'll get to it in a second, I guess, but it gave us a really weird group of shows and a a lot of interesting matches, but. Not a lot of great matches again, so I guess we'll get into all that. But uh, how's life been treating you, Matt? What have you been up to? Uh, it's been pretty good for being this time of year and not getting much sunshine. We had a busy day of kids' sports in my household today, so I appreciate you willing to do this recording a little bit later. Oh, I love and... doing it. It was perfect for me because I was like, I can just wait till Saturday. I am the ultimate procrastinator with these uh, retro episodes, so I'm like, I don't want to do it until the day I have to record, which <laughs> means it's all fresh in my mind, right? I watched it all today, so... Yeah, know, no, it makes it, perfect you know, sense. But but no, but mostly it's just like, I'm glad I... If it's like 2 o'clock, obviously I have to watch some stuff before today, but since it's 6 o'clock Eastern, I'm like, oh, this works out perfect. I can just watch it all on Saturday instead of trying to fit it in on weekdays. But, That's awesome. So yeah, yeah, but other than that, it's just been the usual grind and keep on pushing through things. Uh, what did I do this? This week I went to Dynamite, the uh, All Elite Wrestling television program at the UBS Arena, uh, which is at uh, Elmont, New York, which is like, okay, people who don't know New York State geography, it's, they basically put this place, I think I might have gone over this before, but they put this place on the least, the least Long Island spot they could possibly call Long Island. Like you basically cross the fucking street and you're back in Queens. I know Queens is technically on Long Island, but nobody thinks of it like that. So basically the moment that Queens ends and Long Island starts, that's where this is. So it's like, it is super close to me. Like I, like on, um, you know, when there's no traffic, which obviously is not that often, 
Uh, it's like a 15 minute drive from where I am, like on the border of the Bronx and Queens. So yeah, very, very uh, cool to have a venue like that right in your backyard. And I already gone to uh, the Rangers Islanders a few weeks ago. So I'd already, the first Ranger game at that building, which was uh, <laughs> very expensive, honestly. I mean, the first ever Rangers game in the Islanders new building, they wanted like $200 just to get in the door. So, you know, I did not have great seats to that. I didn't spend much more money on it, but uh you know, still great to go there and see the Rangers win. And then, you know, here we were back for Dynamite, much cheaper tickets. I think they were like, like barely over a hundred for uh, like right dead center on the hundred level. And, you know, there, it was a, it was a fun show. I wouldn't say it was like a great show by any stretch. I mean, the, the one thing about it is like, okay, so you have a, you have a show where the, the AEW fans, I guess, were crowing about the ticket sales compared to the WWE ticket sales, right? Uh, which was was a lot higher. I believe it was nine, like 9,500 for this Dynamite uh, versus like 6,000 for Raw a few weeks ago. I I would love to have known what the fuck that 6,000 people at that Raw felt like because 9,500 in an arena the size of UBS really felt like a, a sparse crowd. And, you know, part of the problem is like it's, it's an arena that seats you know, 17,500 for hockey. And obviously at a hockey game, you do not have floor seats. You know, you have, that's where they're fucking playing hockey, right? Right. So where the ring is, when you have all these floor seats, you uh, already for this 9,500 people, you know, however many people is on the floor, I don't know if it's like a thousand or 2000 or what. Um, so that means there's even less people in this giant, in the giant bowl in the seating area. So, you know, when you're sitting, we're sitting on the side across from the hard cam, like almost everybody. And you're just looking at all these empty seats all night. Like, cause the hard cam side has nobody. Um, you know, they did have some people, like very few people. You can see it on my, uh, I posted a Twitter feed of hooks entrance or a recording on Twitter. I should say of hooks entrance. And, uh, people kept, I had to mute the thread because people kept fucking tweeting. They went, look at all the empty seats. I'm like, okay, it's the hard cam side. And it's like, I don't know what you expected 9,500 people to look like in an eight, in a 17, you know, a ring that sits 17.5. I mean, right. it's just, it's, it's going to look sparse on that side. But anyway, um, so yeah, so the atmosphere, like it wasn't my favorite show for atmosphere. I mean, like the, the Grand Slam show in Queens, which was, uh, you know, I, I believe it was like 18,000 or something, like some crazy number. I mean, that had way better atmosphere than this. This, like you could feel, you know, the, the people were loud enough. And the people that were there were excited to be there. But like, you know, just being in a building that big that feels half full. Right. You know, it doesn't it, it does that. You know, it doesn't it does detract from the atmosphere. The same right. kind of thing yeah. happened uh, at that Texas show, the the G1 night one, where it's like, OK, 5000 fans is, you know, quite a lot of fans, actually. But they're in a giant 20,000 seat building and it, it just feels, you know, it does take things down a little bit. Yeah. Whenever you're in a giant building and it's that underfilled um yeah it just can't help but take from the atmosphere just from the sight lines to how the sound sometimes gets lost in the building yeah um, it's just not the same as having that exact same number more tightly packed together although yeah. in these times of global pandemic maybe it's a good thing you had some room to spread around. <laughs> well we didn't really in our row i mean the, the, these sections they, they completely filled them but then like you could see across you know the uh that's true of course yeah, yeah the way they move everyone together for yeah. the camera so oh well they had a chance <laughs> um but yeah i mean i i hope they run it again because again it is so easy and convenient for me to get to um but like you know the next time they run it maybe they should run it for like a se- like a special 
episode or something so they could actually fill it, you know. But, you know, being there for, uh, you know, MJF's, that whole MJF saga was really fun. Uh, you know, he was so ridiculously over with this crowd. And then obviously as someone who loves hockey, uh, the fact that CM Punk's entire promo was just based around shitting on the Islanders was really funny. I went to the game, I went to the show, I should say, in my Rangers jersey, which I'm like, haha, I'm going to troll the Islanders. And then like, you know, 10 other people had that same idea because he kept, kept seeing <laughs> Rangers jerseys around the arena. But yeah, we would, it is very funny when, when a wrestler insults the Islanders in Long Island. It's like half the people are going to cheer that because there's a lot of Rangers fans, you know, at this show in Long Island. That's pretty much what happened. Like a bunch of my people, a bunch of people in my section were like chanting, let's go Rangers and stuff. Right. When, uh, when Punk was yelling about, was making fun of the Islanders. But yeah, yeah, as a Manchester United fan, it reminds me of whenever, and I've just seen these on TV, um, haven't been to a WWF show in Manchester, always do better things when I'm in Manchester than go to WWF shows. But <laughs> when a wrestler will wear a Manchester United jersey out there and then start ripping on Manchester United and rip them off and half the crowd cheers anyways, because half of Manchester hates United. So yeah. uh, not always as good of a heel heat move as they think. But but in this case, it worked because the people still kind of rallied. Like I was one, worried it was going to like, you know, hurt punk and help MJF what they're going for or hurt or help punk and hurt MJF. You know what I mean? But yes. like, but when punk really started leaning into the Chicago is better than New York stuff that gets everybody on the same side because yep. you know, people in New York hate Chicago for whatever reason. I don't really get it. I, I've always, the, the, the few times I've been to Chicago, I thought it was a very nice city, but they have like a weird rivalry there. And yeah, that really got all the fans to rally around, you know, New York and long Island and stuff. But yeah, just being there for the whole MGF saga through the Battle Royal was easily the highlight of the show. It was kind of downhill after that, other than the Hook debut, which was really cool to be there for. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, they they trained that guy to basically wrestle like, if you closed your eyes and imagined what Taz's son would wrestle like, it was exactly that. So, Which seems yeah, like the right is. thing to do with him. You know, it's again, probably better than the WWE method of <laughs> picture what this next generation should be or second generation wrestler should be and then do the complete opposite. Yeah, this is very uh, whatever. I saw that, that Jabber Nation guy on Twitter was like, oh, he's not better than Braun Breaker or even Dominic. And it's like, OK, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about yeah. Braun Breaker. I've actually never seen him wrestle the uh, the Steiner child, I guess, that they didn't are not calling Steiner for God knows what reason. But he's definitely better than Dominic Mysterio. Dominic Mysterio is like one of the worst wrestlers I've ever seen, I think. Right. No need to engage with someone offering such wisdom as that. (laughs) But yeah, you know, pretty fun show. Um, And yeah, you know, I guess that's all I've been up to lately. What did I do last? I guess I went to, did I go to any hockey games since the last? I think I went to Rangers and Flyers since we last did this, which was another Rangers win. So they've been winning a lot of games. Uh, And I'm going to see the Rangers and the Predators uh this sunday or tomorrow as i'm recording this uh so hopefully they win that one as well i think they've they've only lost i've attended a lot of games already this season they've only lost once so hopefully they can keep it going um and then yeah next week i'm going to the nutcracker which uh you know nicole wanted to go to which is you know i've seen it before it's 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 uh you know as ballets go it's very basic obviously but it's yeah i've seen it before as well very enjoyable experience so yeah we're seeing it, I guess, at the God, what the hell? The, the famous New York one that the name escapes me right now. Uh, <laughs> the the is it just called the New York City Ballet? Oh, Lincoln Center, duh. That's where we're, that's where it is, Lincoln Center. So you know, I've been there. I've been there a few times actually for a ballet, and 
like for orchestra stuff and everything. But yeah, so we're going to Lincoln Center. You can tell I'm a real patron of the arts, everybody. <laughs> going to Lincoln Center to see uh, to see the Nutcracker on Friday. And yeah, and that's pretty much it, I guess, before uh, my big trip to Vegas at the start of January. So we'll talk about what that means for the show when we get to it. But uh be a few weeks, I think, where I'll have to, you know, catch up on a lot of wrestling, including Wrestle Kingdom and all the other Jan- early January uh, Puro shows. So... Well, the schedule might be a little weird, but, you know, for the rest of the year, we got this episode, obviously. Two weeks from now, we'll be doing the uh, another edition of Tokyo Dome Retro Roulette leading up to Wrestle Kingdom. So, you know, any Tokyo Dome show, uh, pick some random matches out of it. It was fun the first two times we did it, so definitely going to enjoy doing another one of those. doesn't have to be New Japan. doesn't have to be one four. And then right before I leave for Vegas on January 1st will be the annual awards show, which we are still doing. So that will be the fifth annual uh, Wrestling Omakase Awards. All guests should have gotten their ballots. So if you're a guest and you're, if you were a guest in 2021 and you do not have your ballot and you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, please make sure you get a hold of me somehow, Twitter or Voice Wrestling Slack or Discord or uh, Carrier Pigeon, whatever the fuck you want to do, and let me know that you never got a ballot and I will get you your ballot. So... Our yeah, I can safely award. say I received my ballot for the first time ever. So very excited go. to have received that. And, you know, not to spoil anything, but based off of all of our conversations this past year, really excited to vote for WCW as promotion of the year <laughs> in 2021. There you go. Um, but yes, yeah, so obviously, you know, you got till January 1st to fill that out. If you're listening and you are a guest, uh, you know, if you're, if you're new around here, it's not a public ballot. It's just a... Uh, Basically, it's just a ballot balloting of all the Omakase guests for the year, since we obviously have different guests each week. You know, that's where I got the idea to do this awards where the guests for that year vote uh, on the best and worst of the year. So we'll, we'll have our annual awards episode on January 1st. That's when I'm recording that. So literally, literally the day before uh, I fly out to Vegas for the week. So definitely uh, check that out coming up here. Uh, obviously, everything's still free feed. So you can see Patreon is still currently on hiatus. So there you go. Uh, let's get into the subject of this week's episode, which is the WCW Starcade Retro Roulette. Uh, obviously, Starcade started out as a Thanksgiving tradition, but then got bumped off of that Thanksgiving tradition by Survivor Series, as we talked about on the last episode, the Survivor Series Retro Roulette. So it became a December tradition, uh, usually late December, not always, though. Some of these are more like mid-December. Uh, now, for this one, you know, for people who are, if you're listening to a Retro Roulette episode, for the first time, uh, pretty simple concept. We take all of the shows of a certain theme, obviously in this case, Star KP reviews. I put them in a randomizer. I get six random years of the show. And then from each show, I pick a, I put all the matches in a randomizer and I get a random match from each show. Now, I only did it for the quote WCW years. So I believe that started with 88. Let me just confirm that actually. Um, you know, I didn't include any years before Croc- before Crockett sold it. Yes, 88 was the first one eligible. So I didn't include any of the years from when Crockett sold it to, uh, before Crockett sold to Turner. Uh, this was mostly just, um, you know, mostly just because, it, you know, it made sense to do it to start with the Turner years, I guess, because, uh, you know, it is a WCW show, not NWA, even though they did call the first few of them NWA. Um but second of all, I just don't know anything about pre-88 WCW. I mean, you know, it's just not something I really watched. Like the, I think NWA Starcade starts in like 83. And I just yes. never watched any of that stuff. So, you know, it was more like I just w- really would not have much to add. 
on you know early to mid 80s nwa it's one of those blind spots i should definitely go back and watch at some point but i just have not watched it so i was gonna say you know totally understand your logic there is actually some really good stuff from that era of starcade as well though so one of those if you do ever have the chance to revisit it and lord knows there's more than enough wrestling out there easily available to watch so not pressuring to or anything but there's definitely some cool stuff from that era so there you go uh the shows that we end up getting we got 94, 95, 96, <laughs> 97, 98, and 2000. So the randomizer gives us the entire mid-90s, uh, starting to get into the late 90s, and then it skips 99 uh, because it hates Finn's Russo, I guess, which is understandable, and then gives us 2000 instead. So that was very interesting. I was kind of kind of hoping we'd get like some Battle Bowl stuff and you know other early 90s stuff, but uh, I love that early 90s every seven year period that's very inconsistent, obviously, but very interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's my wheelhouse is that time period. So on the one hand, I was disappointed not to get anything from there. But on the other hand, it was good to revisit some of these other matches. Well, kind of good to revisit some of these <laughs> other matches. So we'll get, obviously, into the match we got on each one as we go. Um, but yeah, obviously, you can watch all this stuff on Peacock in the U.S. or in the WWE Network overseas. So we start with Starcade 94 Triple Threat. Uh, December 17th, 1994, from the Municipal Auditorium, I don't know why I suddenly can't talk, in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, a claimed crowd of 8,200 and a pay-per-view buy rate of 0.6, which, you know, to be fair to uh, fucking Brutus Beefcake, was way, so it was way down from what WCW was doing uh, with Hogan in earlier months since he came in back in July. But it was still a lot higher than 95, as we'll get to in a second. Um, but yeah, this was like, I, I, I think most people consider this to be like the the nader, right? Of like the uh, the Hogan era of WCW, the early Hogan era at least, where he, you know, he basically decides to, <laughs> he decides that he wants to wrestle his buddy Brutus Beefcake at the main event of, you know, one of WCW's biggest shows of the year, which is quite the decision, honestly. Yeah, um, yeah, biggest event of the year and had retired Flair shortly before. Uh, yeah, waited to start his feud with Vader after, you know, had to get Beefcake in for Starcade. It's the only angle that made sense. Um, so let's go through the card here. Obviously, I'll tell you the match we got and then uh, I'll let you know if there's anything else I would have rather gotten. So Vader beat Jim Duggan in 1206 to retain the U.S. title. Uh, Alex Wright defeated the future Triple H, Gene Paul Levesque, in 1403. Johnny B. Bad defeated Art Anderson uh, in eleven twenty one to retain the TV title. That would be the match that we got assigned here. The Nasty Boys defeated Harlem Heat in by DQ in seventeen forty nine. Thank God I didn't get that one. I remember that one being horrible. Like eighteen minutes with the Nasty Boys and Harlem Heat. It just sounds horrible. Uh, Mr. T defeated Kevin Sullivan in three fifty. I, I very much forgot not getting that. Sounds amazing. Uh, Sting defeated Avalanche by DQ in fifteen twenty six. Also remember that being horrible. This is a horrible show, by the way. Like really, really bad. We probably got either like the best match or the second best match. I can't. I can't remember. If Vader Duggan might have been better, but I was gonna say, I, based off my memory, I think Vader Duggan was very slightly better, just for the two stiffing each other. But that's yeah. about it. Yeah, these are, these other matches are all horrible. And the main event, Hulk Hogan defeats the Butcher uh, <laughs> in twelve oh seven. To retain the WCW title. So they obviously couldn't call him Brutus Beefcake. Okay. And he debuts in WCW just kind of as Hogan's 
you know, he's just suddenly there with Hogan as his flunky with Jimmy Hart. And, you know, he, Hogan calls him Brother Broody, I think, which is apparently, I, I think that's what he also called him in WWF with the two teams together. I'm pretty sure. But that I guess, they, right, yeah. Yeah. And I guess they thought that, you know, they can't sue them over that. Uh, but then he turns out to be the mysterious masked man who had been attacking Hogan, uh, you know, and to help Ric Flair. And I, don't, I don't know if it's ever explained why he did that. Um, but I, obviously when they, when they pull the mask off uh, and Hogan reveals it was him, you know, the announcers start yelling, he, this man has butchered his friendship with Hogan uh, to try to get over this, this name over. And it just sounds so, una- like no one on the face of the earth has ever yelled out that a man has butchered his friendship with another man. Like it's not a saying, it's not a thing. So it just sounds so ridiculously unnatural. And it's like, okay, we're just trying to get a, we're just trying to get this new name over, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But. It also doesn't help that the new name also has like a generic 1970s territories wrestling feel to it. You know, it's like the butcher. Just He comes out like, he comes out like chopping his hand, you know, to, yep. to signify he's a butcher. It's really horrible. And he's got a- Avalanche, who is, uh, I should have mentioned his John Tenta, you know, Earthquake, Avalanche, Har Har, uh, and Kevin Sullivan in his corner. But yeah, that main event was... Uh, not very good either, if I remember correctly. No. But we got we did get a good match here, so that's good. Uh, this was so basically the the deal here is Johnny B. Bad. People don't know that's Mark Marrow. He was the World TV Champion at this point. He was originally scheduled to defend his title here against the Honky Tonk Man. Uh, you can see that in the video. Honestly, like the opening video shows the Honky Tonk Man breaking a guitar over his head and says that that's the title match. Now Honky's run in WCW was extremely brief. He debuted in August. He started a feud with Johnny B. Bad for the TV title pretty much right after he debuted. Uh, but apparently the, the issue here was Honky Tonk was on a per-appearance contract. He was getting $1,000 per shot. Not bad, you know, not bad money at all, especially in 94, uh, getting $1,000 just to show up and, you know, cut a promo even. Uh, but th- you have to remember, though, this was when, the this was the era of WCW going back to 93 with Bischoff in charge even before Hogan where they were handing out guaranteed contracts to, like, anybody with a pulse. Like, the famous one people always bring up is, uh, you know, Randy Savage's brother, the genius, uh, Lanny Poffo, who, like, had this, I don't know, this six-figure contract they kept renewing automatically every year, even though he never once appeared on WCW television. They were just paying this man six figures a year to literally sit at home uh, for his entire run. It's just amazing. Yeah, I really need to find someone to do that for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm getting paid, you know, four figures or five figures a year to sit at home. I do, don't mind that. Yeah, but you're doing actual work while you're I'm home. doing so actual work. So a little work. different than Papa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so Bischoff now, you know, basically Bischoff didn't like him. Okay, so he brought him in as a favorite of Hogan and Jimmy Hart. Uh, he would later call firing Honky Tonk his favorite firing. So he really did not like this man. But Honky Tonk is like, I want a fat contract like everybody else. Uh, and they told him no. So Honky, in turn, refused to lose to Johnny B. Bad back at Halloween Havoc. Uh, so that match goes to a 10-minute draw instead. Uh, I don't know why why the fuck I had a 10-minute time limit, but I guess just because they're going to go to a draw. Uh, they booked the rematch for Starcade here. Uh, but that night, Honky, once again, refuses to lose to Johnny B. Bad unless he receives... A guaranteed contract. Now, 
he tried to go to Hogan to get him to go to bat for him, and Hogan refused, which started like bad blood between those two. And then what happens from there depends on who you ask. So Hockey says Bischoff refused to give him the contract again, and then he walked out of the building. Bischoff says he fired Honky on the spot when Honky refused a job again. So whatever. Either way, the match is off here. And Art Anderson was your more than suitable replacement, which I'm sure made the match a million times better. Oh, uh, yes. He was a former three-time TV champion at this point between the NWA and WCW versions. But uh, it had already been quite a while since he last held the belt. He, he lost it to Bobby Eaton in May of 91, so like three and a half years ago at a Super Brawl. So they actually start playing Honky Tonk's music at first, but then it just stops and Art Anderson walks out to no music uh, with Colonel Robert Parker and the monster Ming. Uh, Ming was in his very cool, like, suit-wearing bodyguard period mm-hmm. of his career, which I always love this look for Ming. He looks like such a fucking badass in this suit. I mean, he seriously looks like someone who will kill you. Like, that is... Uh, when they dropped that look to go back to the Island Savage gimmick... Uh, you know, later in 95, I believe he joins the Dungeon of Doom and all that. I'm just like, oh, the suit look was so much better. But yeah. Why do you... Well, I mean, and just playing off that, like, I thought actually the way he started was so smart doing the Honky Top Man's music and then the announcers being confused when he didn't come out and then Anderson and his crew coming out to no music. It really made it seem more natural. Mm-hmm. And like, because of how Mang looked, like, I mean, the headcanon I just created was, you know, Mang probably kicked Honky Top Man's <laughs> ass backstage and here comes out the new challenger. Good enough for me. Uh, Tony Shimani basically says that Honky Top Man was too scared to face Johnny B. Bad after he broke the guitar over his head recently and, you know, Johnny was so furious. So a nice little subtle burial of the honky-tonk man on his way out the door. Uh, Johnny B. Bad comes off here, firing off his confetti guns. I forgot how much the crowd loved him when he was a baby face. Like, they are really into Johnny B. Bad here. Uh, So, okay. One thing, (laughs) it is amazing watching these old WCW shows and just writing down, like, quotes from the announcers. Did you catch this one? Bobby Heenan goes, quote, out of nowhere. I have no idea what prompted him to say this. You'd think he would say this the following year when the New Japan guys were all there. But no, he said this here out of nowhere. He's talking about how much he hates Nashville. And then suddenly he says, quote, they should have bombed this town instead of Hiroshima. Excuse me? What? He just casually said they should have dropped a nuclear bomb on the town of Nashville, Tennessee. Even Tony Schiavone with that one is like, someone get the hook, it's time to get Brain out of here. Because it's like, Jesus! Sir, take it down a couple notches here. Why are we asking for genocide? Like, wow. He's like, I want the city of Nashville wiped off the map. <laughs> it's like, okay. I don't know. I maybe like, he maybe he knew what was coming next year. He's like, no, no, I can't use this line <laughs> next year. That'll be just too much, even for me. I got to get it out right now. I was just like, wow, where the fuck did that come from? Uh, early in the match, Arn tells the ref to open up Johnny's fist. Like Johnny has his, Johnny's big thing was his, uh, you know, his, whatever that did he call it the something punch? Can't remember what he called it. Something something punch. I don't, I, don't think it was boogie, I don't think it was Boogie Woogie Punch. Was I think it, it was the Tutti like, Fruity Punch? Tutti Fruity like, Punch. Yes, there you go. There we go. The Tutti Fruity Punch. Uh, so his big thing was the Tutti Fruity Punch. And Arn was telling the ref to open up his fist. And then he immediately starts taking Johnny B. Bad down by the hair repeatedly. That was pretty funny. It's like, don't let him cheat. I'm going to cheat. Uh, Tony, Tony casually mentions early in this match that uh, Colonel Robert Parker's new client, the Blacktop Bully, has just debuted. 
you know who the blacktop bully is? Uh, do you remember this or no? Um, yes, I do. Hold on. You tell me. My memory's not okay. working, but yes. It's Barry Darso, uh, the Demolition Smash, most famously. That's his new character. Now, Blacktop Bully would soon get in a feud with Dustin Rhodes, who was like feuding with the, uh, the, the stud stable guys constantly at this point. And that would culminate in the infamous King of the Road match at Uncensored the following March in 95. They would both blade during that match against the orders of management. They would both get fired as a result. Only one would go to the WF, though, in a very strange gold costume. So, yes, in a weird way, the Blacktop Bully debuting right around this time started the chain of events that eventually gave the world gold dust. So. There you go. <laughs> I just thought that was awesome when he mentioned Blacktop Bully. I'm like, oh, it's coming. This is the start of gold dust. I but, just remembered uh, the actual literal like bully-esque gimmicks that he would do like on Saturday night's main event and stuff like that. It's just like, okay, it's a little too on the nose of a gimmick. Although he would come, so he gets fired uh, March 95. He comes back to WCW late 97. Uh, like you said, just kind of has the generic bullies and mostly on Saturday night. But then he gets repackaged as one of my favorite like low card characters ever. Do you remember this one? Mr. Hole in One. Barry yes, Darcy. Yep. He is the just a man obsessed with golf. I don't know why, but like whenever I would watch Saturday Night as a kid, I'd be like, "Mr. Hole in One, that's my guy," and he would usually Did, lose. Uh, but, now you got my brain running. Didn't, wasn't there even one Saturday Night where he like? Maybe I've just created this memory, but I remember him going like through all his previous WCW gimmicks, and so like he had like one quick segment as Crusher Khrushchev again, and. Anyway, maybe this is too off topic, but now I, just also in my head, I remember him like having these one-off appearances maybe as his previous reincarnations as well. Yeah, maybe he did do that. I don't remember that, but I just I just remember Mr. Hole in One very well for some reason because <laughs> it's such a stupid gimmick. But for some reason, it's still like better than Curran White. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's better for sure, better than Curran White for golf-related gimmicks. Uh, but as far as this match here, it's a fun back-and-forth match, lots of fast-paced action. Uh, in the end, Arn tried to cheat one too many times. He got caught with his feet on the bottom rope, and that allowed Johnny to schoolboy him from behind for the win. Uh, the 11... I just Sorry about that little hiccup. Uh, the 11 minutes here just flew the fuck by. Uh, there will be shorter matches we're talking about later that felt 10 times as long as this. Uh, I went three and a half stars in this. I thought it was good. Oh, wow. You really liked it. Uh, I so, liked it more than you, I guess. Yeah. Now, I enjoyed it. I just... Um, didn't see that. I thought there were some awkward spots during the match, so um, maybe that took it down a little bit. But it was just, you know, good basic story, like you said, back and forth. And um, the thing that I really appreciate about watching Arn Anderson now these days um, is just the little things he does in the ring. So even at this point later in his career, and injuries definitely taking a toll, he just does, um, you know, a combination of how he moves around the ring and the shithousery he does. Uh, it's just it entertains you regardless, and so. Um, really appreciate that in almost all late Anderson matches, including this one. Um, I think you highlighted the best moments for this match uh, at the beginning when he was complaining about the closed fist before the opening bell even rang and then immediately started cheating himself. Um, and yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, just not to the extent that you did. Uh, I gave it two and three quarters, but thought it was a fun opener that was um, maybe more fun than what the rating reflects. Oh, there you go. So that is our first one here. Let us move over to the very next year, Starcade 95, the World Cup of Wrestling uh, from December 27th, 1995, back in Nashville, uh, the same building. 
a claimed attendance of 8,200, but this time a much lower buy rate, 0.36. So, uh, you know, the the concept here did not get over with the uh, WCW fans at the time, which, you know, I feel like this could have worked a lot better just even a few years later, but uh did not work out well here. The uh, pair of dark matches, DDP beating Dave Sullivan and the American Males beating the Blue Bloods. Uh, then we had the World Cup of Wrestling match number one. Jushin Liger defeating Chris Benoit. This one we really got jobbed. I'm gonna like yes, pretty, much yes. every, pretty much every match I mentioned, especially the the first two, and then also one more. We, I would have liked to get better more than the one we actually got. And then there's even like the the stuff at the end, the triangle and the, the world title match would have been better too. Yes. Yeah. So it opens up with Liger beating Benoit in 10:29 to put a uh, New Japan up one nothing. Then Koji Kanemoto beats Alex Wright in 11:30. Man, and that's the match I actually really wanted. I mean, I love Liger, but those two wrestlers put together. A, I remember the match being really good, but just Kanemoto like versus like right, Pete Kanemoto too. Right, yeah, no, it's just like a perfect combination. I think uh, in a WCW environment, just that would have been fabulous to watch. And apparently, this was also for the junior title, uh, according to this. So, junior title and World Cup number two. New Japan goes up two nothing. Uh, then Lex Luger beats Masahiro Chono, and now it's two to one New Japan. Johnny B. Bad beats Masa Saito by DQ. Uh, that makes it two to two. Then we have the the match I wanted to get because I love this match. Shinjiro Otani defeating Eddie Guerrero uh, in thirteen forty three to put New Japan up three to two. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I mean to be clear, I would have loved to get that. Match. <laughs> there were so many good matches on this card. Yeah, and we got when we got this Randy Savage defeating Tenzan misspelled with an S. No, first of all, no first name. Second of all, they couldn't even spell his last name right. It was Tenzan with an S. I'll, yeah, I'll give Tony Schiavone credit though. He pronounced the name correctly the entire time. So um, even though it was misspelled, he did pronounce it with the Z. Uh, but Savage beat him in six fifty five to even things back up to three to three. Then Sting beat Kensuke Sasaki, the U.S. champion at the time, uh, in six fifty two to win the World Cup for WCW in four to three. Of course, America can't can't do a job. Uh, but yes, WCW wins four to three. Then we had the WCW World Title Number One Contender Triangle Match, uh, which was Ric Flair defeating Lex Luger and Sting by Countout in twenty eight oh three. I remember this being awesome, but also having a horrible finish. So it would have been cool yeah. to see it again. But yeah, that's my memory as well. Really good match, um, and I think if I remember right, I mean it broke down a lot in those typical triple threat style matches where I was one on one a lot. But it really well, I think this, in I this, think this one actually had a rule. Like I think oh, you had to, that's probably why I remember yeah, it that way. Yeah, so. I think there was a rule where they would like tag in the net or something. But yeah, but then they had the awkward double count out finish and. But yeah, this was really cool because Lex was, uh, you know, he was in this weird space where he was sort of between, very much a tweener, and he worked as a total baby face against Flair, and then worked as a total heel against Sting. Would go back and forth. It was kind of cool. So yep. we're like a best of of the three of them. So yeah, I remember this being pretty awesome. And, you know, I'm sad we didn't get that one. And then Flair beat Savage immediately after he won his number one contendership to win the world title back in only 841. Uh, but, yeah, so that's the main event. And there was also another dark match. So this is a weird one. They had Sa- Sasaki beat the one-man gang to retain the U.S. title after the match was restarted. But then I believe they just said the one-man gang won. Right? Isn't that what happened? Let me see if I can find it in the title history. The U.S. Yeah. title history around this time was such a fucking mess. Right. If I, mean, I remember right, yeah, I think that was a, because I, I think originally they said like this was taped 
like they taped at the end of the pay-per-view because they were supposed to air it but then i think yeah. they never did air it and like you said just declared one man gang the new champion so i think they used the footage of one man gang beating sasaki but then didn't use the footage of the match getting restarted and having sasaki win the right. match. i believe yeah. that's what happened and then one man gang was champion yeah so that was a that was a weird weird little thing there or maybe maybe new japan didn't want him losing i, I don't know but it was it was very weird uh, but yes, let's get into the match we got here, which was Savage against Tenzon. Um, so Savage is WWE champion at this point. Obviously, he's going to lose it at the end of the night to uh, to Flair. He won the belt at World War III the previous month. Uh, loses to Flair on this show. He gets the belt back less than a month later on the January 22nd Nitro, uh, only to lose it right back to Flair in the February 11th Super Brawl pay-per-view. We covered that in our Super yes, Brawl episode. Did. There was a cage match where we, I remember we disagreed greatly on the quality. Um, but that's the one with the Miss Elizabeth turn, which Elizabeth turns on him. Uh, and then, you know, Flair starts giving away all his alimony money. That, that was just a really funny feud. Uh, so Savage, after losing the title in early 96, it takes him over three years to get the belt back at Spring Stampede 98. That title reign lost, lasted all of one day where he loses it back to Hollywood Hogan with the Bret Hart heel turn. The following year, he wins the belt again at Bash of the Beach in July 99 from Kevin Nash in a tag match of all things. And he loses it to Hogan the next night on Nitro again. So that poor guy had two 24-hour title reigns where he lost the belt to Hogan two years in a row. Like, no wonder why this man was so fucking bitter. Right. Uh, and that was Randy Savage's final world title reign of his career, obviously. Yeah. So. And also, as we previously discussed on the Super Bowl one, you know, this one started with the infamous, like I said, World War Three match where Savage won it only because um, he was not doing anything while Hogan was pulled out of the ring underneath the bottom rope. Yeah. Uh, and then the referee was like, oh, Hogan must have gotten eliminated magically somehow. Let's make Savage the champ. And, and Hogan freaks the fuck out about it. And the crowd fucking turns on him. And they're like, you know what? You're a little baby. Randy Savage, is our, we're fine with Savage as our champion. Uh, but yeah, that was just kind of funny. Um, but yeah, Tenzon, he enters here to maybe the most stereotypical Japanese song ever created. <laughs> like, what was this song? Like, I was like, someone was like, get me a Japanese song, goddammit. I think WCW had about two um, music library, quote unquote, Japanese sounding songs that they just constantly used in rotation for any Japanese wrestlers for years. It's, I don't remember this um, one though. I don't know. Maybe, they, maybe this one, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not remembering. I mean, I, I, to be, to be fair, I wasn't listening to this one too much, but you talking <laughs> about that just remind me of like, you know, literally they would recycle the same Japanese. I, I, I remember, bit. I remember one they had for a long time. That was like, like very upbeat. And that was not this one. This one was like a very different song, but that one I remember they used for a million years for like anyone Sonny Ono came out with. And, you know, this, this was the, you know, this was a different one, yeah. I guess. Well, I guess they had to dig a little bit deeper into the music <laughs> library of having seven wrestlers over on one night. I guess so. Uh, so their tights here strangely match. Uh, they're both wearing these weird rainbow <laughs> colored tights. I'm so glad you mentioned it. I was like, they would have made a really cool tag team. For, I was thinking like, that too. <laughs> It's like they we should have gotten a Randy Savage and Hiroshi Tenzon tag team. Uh, so Tenzon just beats Savage down forever, mostly with chom- chops and stomps. Uh, Savage tries to come back by ramming Tenzon's head in the top turnbuckle, but Tenzon has a very hard head, so he just completely no-sells it. Uh, this beatdown by Tenzon just drags on and on and on. And again, this match is only like, God, what did I say? It's... Uh, 
less than seven minutes. Yeah, it's six fifty-five, and this beatdown feels endless. The crowd doesn't give a shit. There's like a very, very late USA chant at one point, but that's about it. Uh, Tenzon finally misses a moonsault. That the Savage hit a very weak clothesline from behind on him, mm-hmm. and that knocks Tenzon to the apron. Savage tries to suplex back in the ring. He eventually gets a very weak suplex over the top rope. I can't even tell if he was going for that. I don't know if no, he just... It, it looked like a botch, whatever it was. Yeah, he was either going for a regular suplex in the ring and just dropped him over the top rope, or he was going for a suplex over the top rope and just did it horribly. But either way, that's the setup for him to immediately drop the elbow off the top for the win. This sucked. This was yeah. pretty bad. I mean, the Tenzon beatdown took forever. Savage's comeback was almost non-existent, and he botched the big spot at the end. Now, I remembered that Savage around this time was kind of just a guy who would get his ass kicked and then drop an elbow and Yeah, win. this was peak broken down Savage. And boy, yeah, that was the case here. Um, sometimes that worked. I mean, he was so good at selling that, like, you know, he could just sell forever and then drop his elbow and win, and you were like, oh, that wasn't too bad. It did not work here. Uh, I no. went one and a half stars on this. Pretty damn bad. Yeah, no, I agree. It was unfortunately a brutal match. Um, and yeah, like I said, Savage during this time usually was a good seller, but um, he didn't care for selling for Tenzon in this one. I mean, he got hit a lot and allowed Tenzon to control the match, but it looked more like an inconvenience than he was in peril at any point. And then uh, his brief comeback where everything other than the elbow didn't even look good. And that was the end of the match. So. Um, really not much else, much else to say. I gave a half a star for the matching tights and some of the hard chops. And <laughs> that was about it. Uh, you're even harder on it than me. The moonsault was fine. There That's true. I, I should have bumped it up to three quarters of a star. I apologize. Uh, up next, we have Starcade 96. Uh, back in Nashville again. They love this fucking building. A crowd of 9,030 and a pay-per-view buy rate of 0.93 on December 29th, 96. So definitely the buy rate up a lot from the last two years for the main event here. Uh, the show here starts with a dark match. Uh, Mascarita Sagrada and Octagon Cito defeat Jerito Estrada and Puriata Morgan. Okay. <laughs> and a, I don't even know if <laughs> those is like WCW Lucha guys. So that's a little... Or Lucha yeah, no, I'm not fully sure about why that particular match was worked, but that's okay. Uh, the show opened with... The match I wish we would have gotten, which was Ultimo Dragon defeating Dean Malenko to unify the WCW Cruiserweight title and the J-Crown, although he would then lose the J-Crown without losing the Cruiserweight titles. I guess he didn't unify them. But yeah, that one, 1830, that that sounds awesome. I mean, I really wish we had gotten that. Uh, I remember it being awesome, actually. Then we have the World Women's Title Final, which was Akira Hokoto defeating Medusa in only 706. And Hakota would, of course, retire not that long after that, and she would be the only champion. Uh, Juice and Thunder Liger defeating Rey Mysterio Jr. in 1416. That would have been great to get as well. Uh, a no-GQ match, Jeff Jarrett against defeating Chris Benoit in 1348. Uh, I don't mind not getting that because I don't need to see Benoit <laughs> with women. I mean, that's like no, a different level of horrible. Right. right. Even just watching a regular Benoit match. During, yeah. Watching anything from this. Whole, exactly. You don't need to see him with woman. Yeah. This whole woman feud period. Uh, the world tag titles, the outsiders, uh, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall with six defeat the faces of fear. Ming and the barbarian with Jimmy Hart in 1152 to retain uh, the U S title tournament final. Eddie Guerrero defeating DDP in 1520. Uh, that was the NWO costing DDP the match. And then, because he, he, he kept refusing to join them, basically. 
It was just like the start of his baby face turn. And Eddie after that was also a face, so they laid him out and stole the U.S. belt. Uh, then we had Lex Luger beating the Giant in 1323. I mean, it's not like any kind of amazing match, but I remember being like pretty surprisingly solid. So I wouldn't mind getting that either. And it had a really famous finish where, you know, Sting had just walked out on WCW, you know, after Fallboro when they, they thought he had joined the NWO. And he comes out with the bat. He whispers something in Lex and the Giant's ears and leaves the bat in the middle of the ring so you don't know whose side he's on still. And Lex grabs the bat and just destroys the Giant with it for the win. And the crowd just goes absolutely ape shit for this because it was. This is the first time the NWO loses a match, I believe. I'm almost positive this is their first yeah. loss. No, yeah. I'm pretty sure you're right. And this whole night was like the first night of setbacks for NWO, really. Yeah. And um, could have led to some really cool storytelling, but it was <laughs> WCW, so they ended up over the next few years doing some pretty bad storytelling instead. But that's okay. Uh, and then the main event: Roddy Piper defeated Hollywood Hogan in 1536. In a non-title match, which was not announced as such before the show, I can tell you that. Uh, yeah, yes. it was one of those awkward <laughs> ones where they ne- technically never said it was a title match either, but they they also never said it was non-title. And again, Starcade, biggest pay-per-view of the year, supposedly. Um, you would think it would be for the title. Yeah. Uh, but yes, this one, uh, I mean, this show, this is the match we got. So then we got the main event here. Um so yeah, it's you know basically the the fun, the funniest thing about this is they said before the show too that Piper himself drew up the contract for this match. So why is he a fucking right. idiot? Yeah, it's like why give yourself a non-title match instead of a title match? It's very weird. But yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why people probably thought it was a title match. Um, but I guess they wanted Hogan to lose, but they didn't want to do the title match, so they didn't want to lose the title. Uh. Hollywood Hogan, he has quite the entourage here. He has uh, Miss Elizabeth, <laughs> Ted DiBiase, and Vincent. It's just like quite the collection of people right. he's watching come out with. Uh, Hogan, you'll never guess. If, you don't, if you've never seen a Hollywood Hogan, uh, you know, from his heel run, just like he basically is just aping everything Memphis he's ever seen. So what does he do when the match starts? He takes a powder immediately, just goes outside the stall. Uh, they do finally start slugging it after stalling. Piper does do a pretty great job looking fired up as he uh, beats on Hogan. But then Hogan quickly goes back to the outside to do some more stalling. Uh, And this match just drags on and on and on. Piper beats Hogan with a belt on the outside. They go back in the ring and the ref, for some reason, allows him to continue beating him with a belt. I don't know why that's legal. Uh, But then he finally does take the belt away from Piper when he starts choking him with it against the ropes. So... WCW rules, everybody. You can hit someone with a leather belt all you want. You just can't choke them with it. So good to know, I guess. Uh, Diviasi trips up Piper from the outside. Piper goes out there and like stalks him around the ring like a complete idiot. So Hogan can attack him from behind. It's like every babyface in the history of wrestling, still, like they still do this. I'm just like, what do you think is going to happen if you go after the person who is not in the match? It just doesn't make any Like, Ignore that person. They're not going right. to... <laughs> you know, they can't. If you, well, your opponent is going to go after you if you do this. Yeah. Well, I know what I thought was interesting in this match is, you know, for them, like billing it as two of the icons and two of the smartest men in wrestling, within like the first, I don't know, five minutes or six minutes of the match or whatever, you had both wrestlers turn their back on their opponents and very slowly walk away. <laughs> and it's like, well, what do you think is going to happen in that situation? You're going to get jumped from behind. Yeah. I mean, I, exactly. And this is just dragging out so bad. Nothing but punching and kicking and choking and eye raking. 
some hair pulling in there too. Yippee ki yay. Uh, Hogan misses the big leg drop. Piper gets up. He fucking hits the most laughably weak looking leg kicks I have ever seen in my life. It's like, buddy, you don't know, you do not know how to, know how to throw a leg kick. Uh, maybe leave this to Shibata or something. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, the giant runs out at this point. Randy Anderson has suddenly come to be very interested in checking out Hulk Hogan. Now, this is one of the funniest things. Yes. This is the funniest thing of the match. The giant lifts Roddy Piper up for the choke slam. The spot that's supposed to happen is Hogan's supposed to walk over there and get kicked by Piper's legs while he's up with the choke slam. Unfortunately, a fan in the front row, you can see this guy yep. right on camera, suddenly decide, you know what, I'm not going to take this anymore. And like he jumps over the barricade, runs in to try to save Piper. He even like tries to knock Gibiasi out of the way. Um, Anderson and Hogan have to team up to take him out. That's a pretty funny mm-hmm. visual already. It yep. looked like Randy Anderson and the ref got some good shots in too. Uh, and then finally Hogan wanders over to the world's longest choke slam, where Giant has been holding this motherfucker up for so long right. because of this fan intrusion. That and the look so- on the Giant's face during all of this, you can tell he's like, you can just see him thinking this all through, like, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> do I keep holding him? Do I go attack the fan as well? <laughs> do I just choke slam it? Like, I mean, I felt bad for the guy. It's not his fault that the spot got blown, but you yeah. can just tell he was in like, oh crap, I don't know what to do mode. <laughs> uh, Piper finally kicks Hogan from midair in the world's longest choke slam. And Piper then bites his way out of the choke slam, sort of awkwardly knocks Giant out of the ring. I don't. What does he even do to knock him out of the ring? I couldn't even tell. Like, was this like a really weak clothesline or something? I think it was a weak clothesline. Yeah, okay, because it just kind of looked like Giant fell out of the ring. It was very weird looking. Uh, and then Piper immediately applies a sleeper hold on the Hulkster. Uh, Hogan goes out. Ref drops the arm three times, and Piper wins. Uh, a horrible finish to a really horrible match. Uh, and I get, like you said, you can blame the fam running for making the choke slam so absurdly long, but that finish was still going to suck anyway. I mean, oh, Hulk, I got him up for the choke slam. Oh, here's Hulk Hogan to wander over and get kicked by him for no fucking reason. It's just like it, it was still horrible either way. It just made the just made it even more horrible. And then we got a fucking sleeper, which was already like stupid even by 1996. Uh, you know, the crowd does pop for it, I guess. But you know, I don't know. This was Drek, half a star. Pretty much just the only ha- only reason why it gets half a star is for the crowd reaction. If you want to watch 15 minutes of nothing but punching and bad brawling, uh, you found your fucking match. I guess. I don't know. Well, John, let me respectfully disagree with you on this one. So everything you said was 100% t- true. I want to be clear about that. And Piper post-hip surgery was a mess. Um, and... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Was never a Hogan fan uh, in WCW. And yet somehow I ended up enjoying this match. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. It's crazy. The, the podcast, honestly. 
don't know. I liked that um, Piper approached it with just the fight feel instead of a wrestling match and felt like Hogan was getting his comeuppance through it as Piper was using a lot of the same cheap tricks in the ring that Hogan had been using as his heel character. And I guess, to be honest, as a face for years before um, the crowd was into it. Uh, it had one of my favorite announcing lines of the night when Tony yelled out, he's pulling out Hogan's hair. And then Bobby immediately is like, well, that shouldn't take long. Uh, <laughs> it just left that. me laughing. Uh, so maybe that put me in a good mood for the rest of the match. I'm not sure. Um, I, I thought it was absolutely that hilarious that Hogan delivered belly scratches at one point in the match instead of his typical back scratches. And again, that had me laughing. Look, it was uh, a funny bad match. I agree, but it was still bad. I'm just saying I enjoyed it, I guess, for what it was. Um, yeah. Um, I know I'm not the first person to say it. I'll also point out though, on the negative side, um, this is yet another example of DiBiase being just a really awful generic heel manager. And it's amazing. He kept getting put in heel manager positions. Oh yeah. Um, how, how he almost messed years? up the one foot grab. Then he completely messed up a second one. How many years uh, did he drag down the WWF? Right. It's <laughs> unbelievable. He was, he was just not cut out to be a manager at all. Yeah. I did think they missed what uh, opportunity with the finish with the crowd investment. And with, I think the crowd thought Hogan was going to win. Cause I think most of them thought it was for the title that when he was in the sleeper hold, he should have started hulking out of it like he used to before then that not working and actually succumbing to the sleeper. I thought that would have been a bit cooler of a finish. Um, but then to give Randy Anderson credit, I like the like look of surprise on his face when Hogan's arm dropped and he called for the bell. So he probably sold it better, the finish better than anyone else in the ring. Um, maybe I'm way overrating this. Like I said, maybe I was in too good of a mood, but I gave it three stars. I'm not saying it was great, but... I enjoyed it for what it was. And um, yeah, and yeah, maybe it's, uh, I've been watching a lot of old 1980s Piper recently. So maybe I just, I don't know, maybe he, I got a soft spot in my heart for him right now, but I actually enjoyed it much better um, than their cage match a few months later. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. It was a, <laughs> may, might be the biggest difference of opinion I've ever had about a match on the show, honestly, between half a star and three stars, but. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a pretty big one. <laughs> <laughs> so the outsiders run out afterward. Piper fights them both off for a second, and he simply leaves the ring. Uh, Giant walks out on the rest of the NWO. The outsiders and Hogan then confront him at the top of the stage, and Giant points out correctly that nobody was yes. watching his back when he fought Lex Luger in the semi-main. Apparently, he just had like uh, six to watch his back, and that was it. And Hogan tells him he dropped the ball, but then he says, thank God the NWO still has the belt. So I guess that confirms... For the first time, it's not yeah. title. And this is all setting up Giant officially leaving NWO for the first time ahead of his title shot against Hogan at the first ever sold out, the NWO sold out the next month, which he earned that title shot by winning World War Three the month yeah, before. Yeah, I was about to say that, which again, part of his departure was built on him never getting the title shot that yeah. he won from winning World War Three in the first place. So now, that extra makes, fuel for that, the fire. that makes sense. That does make sense. The problem is his actual turn to the NWO back in September at the start of September made no sense. No. I mean, no. completely nonsensical, considering Hogan had just screwed him out of the title at Roadwild, or Hogwild, I think it's the first one was called, Yeah, uh, a few weeks beforehand. And it was like, he was just like, well, Ted DiBiase paid me. But it's like, you were just a world champion. And then he right. hit you with the belt and took it from you. Like, why would you join him? Um, so yeah, that turn made no sense. And I don't know why they bothered, given that they turned him back four months later. Um, 
but we'll have plenty of NWO turns that make no sense to talk about <laughs> later. Uh, at least his second NWO turn in mid-98 did make more sense. Like, he had been feuding with Kevin Nash all year, so when the split happened and he basically joined up with NWO Hollywood to oppose Nash and the Wolfpack, that made a lot more sense than uh, this turn did. But yes, Hogan gets his belt. He poses and celebrates to the NWO music to end the show. A very weird ending, considering he just fucking lost. I was yeah. like, why is this show ending with Hogan celebrating? He lost the main event. But really strange. But I guess the answer is because it's Hulk Hogan. So. Right. <laughs> then we go ahead of another year here to start Cade 97. Finally got out of Nashville. This was held December 28th, 1997 at the, at the time, brand new MCI Center in Washington, D.C., a claimed crowd of 23,000, which I'm quite sure is uh, not true. does not hold that many people. But yes, this is the very first pro wrestling event ever held at the MCI Center in downtown D.C. Uh, it opened less than a month earlier, December 2nd, 97. Uh, it's been the home of the Washington Capitals in the NHL and the Washington Wizards in the NBA uh, from in, you know to present day. And it became known as the Verizon Center after Verizon purchased MCI in January 2006, and it would keep that name until Capital One purchased the naming rights in August 2017. So it is now the Capital One Center today. And this is also the site of the very first episode of AW Dynamite uh, on October 2nd, 2019. So, you know, kind of a interesting little note there, I guess. But yes, this show, I think another very infamous show for all the wrong reasons with the yeah. one of the worst main event finishes of all time. Uh, the match we got, though, was the opener, the Cruiserweight title, which I was excited to get until I watched it. Uh, Eddie Guerrero defeated Dean Malenko to retain the title in 1457. Uh, then we had a six-man tag with the NWO team of Randy Savage, who was about to turn, uh, well, it was like two months away from sort of turning on Hogan and starting the... Uh, NWO split. Uh, Randy Savage, Scott Norton, and Vincent defeated Ray Trailer, who was uh, a big boss fan. And the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, Scott was only a few months away from his heel turn. Uh, they beat them in 12-12. We had Bill Goldberg beating Mongo McMichael in 634, which I kind of wish I had gotten just for, apparently it's like <laughs> legendarily horrible. I barely remember yeah. it, but uh, it's like the original heel version of Goldberg too, which nobody remembers. So... Uh, we had a no DQ match with Saturn beating Chris Benoit in 11.06. A really horrible match. I remember this being really bad, so I'm glad we didn't get it. Buff Bagwell beating Lex Luger in 17.03. Why they gave these two 17 minutes is a question for our times. Uh, a U.S. title match with DDP beating Kurt Henning in 11.09 to win the title. The control for Monday Nitro match, when remember they were teasing... Uh, you know, going to NWO Nitro. Uh, Larry Zabisco beat Eric Bischoff to keep it with WCW by DQ at 1130. Couldn't even beat Eric Bischoff clean. Uh, special referee Bret Hart, who would be involved in the main event as well. And then Sting defeats Hollywood Hogan in 1320 to win the WCW World title, except not really, because this is the infamous fast count that's not a fast count match. Yeah. I went and rewatched it again just because I wanted to see it. I, yeah. Basically, I, I put it on for Nicole, and I was like, Nicole... What do you think of this count? And she's like, "What do you mean?" I was like, "Well, what do you think of the count?" And she's like, "It looks like any other count." Right. I was perfectly like, normal. <laughs> perfectly normal. I was like, "Exactly." Now, do you think that is a fast count? And she thought about it for a second. She's like, "Maybe a little tiny bit." And I was like, "It's not a fast count. That's the whole point. It's, yeah. it's not a fast count at all." So the idea was that Hogan 
you know, Hogan at one point, you know, they built this matchup, Sting and Hogan, for 18 months. Uh, you know, all the way back to Sting walking out in WCW, fall, you know, not, maybe not 18 months, maybe it was like 15 months. But back at Fall Brawl in uh, 96. And, you know, Sting, he he just walks out to, that was so weird to me. I, even as a kid, I was like, mm-hmm. he spent, all, he does all these crazy entrances. And this time, he just walks after some kid introduces him. <laughs> some creepy kid voice introduces him. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Um but yeah, he just kind of walks out. Apparently Hogan and Bischoff were mad at him for like showing up in supposedly bad shape or something after having all the time off. And I'm like, I don't did, did did he look out of shape to you? He didn't look out of shape to me. No, I I assumed he meant like maybe to expect him to be more ripped or something. I don't know. Uh, fine. he looked fine. He looked more than fine. Like he looked <laughs> He looked like a credible wrestler in the ring against Hulk Hogan, which is all that you need for the type of storytelling that you're doing. And so, yeah, so he basically the story is Nick Patrick is supposed to be reverting to his old NWO referee habits and fast counting uh, Hogan pitting Stang after Hogan drops the leg. Now, I've always heard the story here is that Hogan paid him before the, before the show to do a regular count instead. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just an urban legend. I don't know. I don't know why the fuck else he would do it. Right. He's insisted that he just thought it was a fast count, but like, how could you think that's a fast count? It wasn't a fast count at all. It was obviously not a fast count. Like in wrestling, you make things obvious. So the crowd gets it. And so when a referee does a fast count, it's not just a fast count. It's an absurdly fast count. So that the fan (laughs) sitting in the back row understands what they just saw. This was nothing. I don't even think this was like even a, a, a faster count than like this was like you did one, uh, two, uh, three. I'm yeah. like, no, it was legit, <laughs> perfectly normal. And I was like, what? What is going on here? Yeah. So yeah, so to, to all the water looks like Hogan just hit his leg drop on Sting and pinned him clean after all that. But then Bret Hart mumbles, "It's not going to happen again." Into a yep. microphone, you can't even hear him say it, and he throws Hogan back in the ring. It's like it's not what's not gonna happen again. Hogan beating the man clean. Obviously right. they're referring they were referring to Survivor Series. Monster, but, right. Yeah. But uh he throws Hogan back in, he punches out Nick Patrick and Sting submits Hogan. Then the next night, everybody celebrates this. The next night they do a rematch that goes to like a no contest, and they strip Sting of the title. So the wing gets nullified on top of it. It's like they could yeah. not have made this guy look like more of a dork if they tried. Yeah. And then you know, he does beat Hogan finally. They make him wait like two months till Super Brawl in yeah. February. He beats Hogan with help from Randy Savage in the NWO split. So he can't even beat him clean. He needs Randy Savage's help to beat him. And then he finally wins the world title. And he holds it for all of two months before he loses it to Savage at <laughs> Spring Stampede. And then Hogan gets it back the next night. So uh, WCW, everybody. I mean, this yeah. was this, this really was like the beginning of the end. I mean, this was like yeah. This yeah, is no, I, the fucking shark. Right. I mean, that was going to be one of my big points for it. And just to give some context for all of this, like everyone remembers the infamous main event and everything that comes after. Um, But this night, you know, I mean, we all make fun of Shivani for it at various times, you know, the biggest night in professional wrestling history, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that would have been still slight hyperbole for this night, but this was truly like going into it, a huge pay-per-view for WCW, one of their biggest pay-per-views ever as a company. I remember and- my, a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine had a giant poster of this show like on his wall above his bed for like months leading up to it. Yeah. Like this felt like it, this felt like the biggest deal of all time. 
Yeah, I ordered this paper. I you know I was ordering most of the WCW pay per views at this time, and I was still living at home in high school. And my dad would occasionally watch some Nitro with me or whatever. But he said, "Hey, can I watch the pay per view with you?" And I was like, "Yeah." And we watched it together. Actually, it's I think it was literally the last pay per view he ever watched with me. And like we were both pretty pumped going into it. And the problem too ended up being it wasn't just the main event. And I'm sure most of the listeners got this as you went through the card as well, but the whole night just ended up being so underwhelming. And then you had the main event and it ended like that. And like I said, going into it, it, they had all the hype. It truly felt like just this giant opportunity. And it was just a huge swing and a miss. And really, like you said, set the stage for the last few years of the promotion. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is like just, it is really is like the beginning of the end because a few months later, obviously WWF wins the ratings battle for the first time, I believe in March 98, maybe it was April. Uh, and it just kind of, they go back and forth for a while and then WWF really pulls ahead, you know, in the fall of 98 and really, you know, at that point, WWF wins very few. Uh, ratings battles and then you know the thing we're going to talk about at the next arcade is like what really like yes. starts them all the way down the shitter but 98 was like a horrible year for this company that they you know they they still drew yeah. well and they still you know they still did great ratings based on the momentum they built up but yeah they really started flushing things down the toilet here and you know really uh what the way they treated sting here you know really was a big a big part of why of why they uh yeah you know they, the way they, started, they ruined sting, people I, goodwill. I was gonna say, yeah the way they treated sting immediately showing they had no clue how to use Bret Hart and WCW. Yeah. Um they got really I lucky mean, that Goldberg came along when he did because yes. that probably if anything like just starved staved it off their decline. Yeah no it gave them an injection of energy that they needed and they would have folded probably even sooner if it wasn't yeah. for the Goldberg run. But there you go. So let's get into our match here, which again was the opener, Guerrero beating Malenko in 1457. Um, so yeah, this Eddie is in the middle of his original big heel run in WCW. Uh, he won the Cruiserweight title for the first time from Chris Jericho. Uh, soon after his heel turn, he beat him for the belt at Fall Brawl in September. He lost it to Rey Mysterio at Halloween Havoc, the famous title versus mask match that Ray was originally scheduled to lose. Uh, they would get that mask off him about a year and change later, of course. Uh, but then Eddie wins the belt back from him a couple weeks later on the November 10th episode of Nitro, and he's the champion here, obviously. So the first big spot is Malenko just fucking murdering Eddie with a powerbomb after catching him off the ropes, trying a rope walk spot. And he follows it up with one of the hardest Alabama slams you'll ever see. Just brutal stuff. Uh, and at this point, you're thinking, here we go. Yippee-ki-yay. Yeah. And it's like the crowd is going crazy for that. And man, the match falls off a cliff after that, unfortunately. Uh, Eddie takes this, Eddie does take this like big running power slam. He kind of no sells it. He acts like he's all fired up, tells Dean to bring it. Then he immediately runs away to the outside when Dean goes after him. I love that. That was great. Just classic Eddie Guerrero. Uh, but after that, he starts targeting Dean's leg, hits a chop block in the ring, and this just goes on forever. The leg work just goes on and on and on. He does eventually set him up with the ring steps against the post. And drop kicks the steps into his leg. And that was kind of a cool spot, I guess. But then Eddie just kind of puts Blinko down with a drop kick to the knee, a missile drop kick to the knee. That was kind of cool. Then hits a frog splash to the knee off the top. And that's a pin. Like, when that was the pin, I was like, excuse me? Like, that's it? 
It was just very such a weird match here. Like you see the Eddie versus Dean as the opener of Starcade. You figure it's gonna be fantastic. It starts fantastic, but it just falls off a fucking cliff after that. And I just I completely forgot how disappointing this match was. Uh you know, after Eddie starts working on the leg, it looks more like an Eddie squash more than anything. Which is weird because I think he loses the Cruise Vital like the next night on Nitro. Yep, he so loses it's like the Ultimo Dragon the next so night. It, so it's like, why do they have him squash Dean so bad? Uh, I don't know. Psychology was sound, but there just wasn't much to it at the end of the day. I gave it three stars. It was fine, but man, you were expecting more, especially these two names. And then the way it starts, you're like, here we go. And then it just it doesn't live up to that at all. Yeah, uh, this one we're in much more agreement about. Um, really enjoyed Eddie being in full sleazy heel mode. Um, loved Malenko in the early going. Not just the moves that he was doing, but he was showing some fire, um, which he doesn't always do. And I thought that made a lot of sense, too, in the context, because the two had been feuding on and off um, for most of the year before for various titles. So completely made sense. Um, some great opening. And then, yeah, and the pace just got slowed way down more than what I was expecting. Um, not that it was bad or anything. Like, I thought it was still fairly smartly worked, even if it was more Eddie dominant than I expected. Um, I enjoyed that they actually had all the leg work directly lead to the finish with the missile dropkick to the leg. So, you know, that was nice to see that it wasn't just time wasting. Um, it was a good match. Um, I went very slightly higher than you, three and a quarter. Um, but getting back to what I said earlier about this whole pay-per-view being disappointing and underwhelming, the fact that this match was only around three or three and a quarter based off of our perspectives, um, that was a part of that disappointment. The WCW Cruiserweight division was on fire at this time. Eddie Guerrero had really grown into his character. This was supposed to be one of the biggest nights in the promotion's history. Um, These two should have torn down the house with each other. And, Instead, you got a perfectly pedestrian match that um, still, I feel quite comfortable saying, ended up being match of the night. And it was just a nothing match, really, that led to the champion losing the night on or the belt on TV the very next night. And um, yeah, just really set, unfortunately set the stage for the whole card. So yeah, like um, you said, it probably is match of the night because the rest of the show fucking sucks. Yeah, no, it's a, like I said. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm really not kidding. I still, to this day, remember sitting there, like, watching this paper with my dad, just, like, every match feeling like, what is going on? Like, because, like, not even be able to make sense of it. It's like, why are none of these matches <laughs> being any good? And, like, the especially, like, the Larry Zabisco, Eric Bischoff semi-main event, I remember it felt like that just took all night to happen. And then the main event happened, and it ended the way that it did, and, like, I understand why my dad never asked about watching another wrestling show with me after this one. It was just, oh, what a horrible card it ended up being. So there you go. Stargate 97, everybody. The beginning of the end. And then <laughs> Please we don't can... rush out to watch oh, it. Yeah, about, actually, maybe we should say the beginning of the beginning of the end. And then 98, Stargate, the yes. next one we got here, is the end of the beginning of the end. Because, boy. Yeah, we uh, could hit, hit uh, a lot of the same notes for this one. <laughs> So Starcade 98, December 27th, 98, the same building, MCI Center, uh, this time a much more realistic attendance of 16,066. Uh, I forgot to get the paper buy rate for the last one. What the fuck was it? Because I want to compare. Actually, these two. I remember the, the 97 one did a crazy buy rate, which probably should have been an indication to, to put uh, Sting over. Yeah, this did a 1.6. 
yeah. I think is the biggest fire they ever did. Yeah, no, I'm pretty uh, sure it was. Like I said, I can't express enough, like, going through it at the time, like, how big of a night this was for WCW. All they had to do was have Sting beat him in, like, five minutes. That's all they had to right. do. Yeah, if they would have had Sting happened. just you know, beat him in, like, a yeah a squash or even a competitive squash, um, nobody would have remembered everything else under delivering the previous yeah. two and a half hours. They would have just remembered that moment, and they could have built on it, but... They failed to do that. So 98 still does a very, very good, not as, not nearly as good, but a very good 1.15, uh, you know, which is, you know, shows you how hot Goldberg was. And, you know, Kevin Nash was very hot at this point too, which I think is one of these things that's less remembered in history, which because of what happened next, we'll get to that in a second. So Starcade 98, like I said, uh, from MCI Center again, opens up with the match I wish we could have gotten, the Cruiserweight title three-way, uh, Kidman beating Juventud Guerrera and Rey Mysterio Jr. in fourteen fifty five. Uh, boy, howdy, I love to get that match. The second match was Kidman beating Eddie Guerrero in a singles match in ten forty nine for the same cruiserweight title. This was the LWO storyline, basically. Uh, then we had Norman Smiley versus Prince beating Prince Iakea in eleven thirty one. Don't know why that's on the biggest. <laughs> Thank show. goodness that was on pay per view. <laughs> uh, Perry Saturn beat the Cat in seven oh seven. Uh, Brian Adams and Scott Norton with Vincent beat Fit Finley and Jerry Flynn in 856. Why is why is this shit? <laughs> what is with this undercard? I mean, Jesus, we could have gotten a lot of shit on this card. Yes. Uh, Conan beats Chris Jericho to retain the TV title in 727. I'm sorry. We couldn't find more than seven minutes for Jericho and Conan. We needed uh, all nine minutes for Brian Adams and Scott Norton against Fit Finley and Jerry Flynn. Like, Jesus. Uh, then we have Eric Bischoff beating Ric Flair in 708. Eric uh, Bischoff wrestling on back-to-back Starcades. Definitely <laughs> needed. <laughs> that was like the flare. They set that up at the flare heart attack angle, uh, which is very strange. And yeah, I don't know. The, the Bischoff flare thing. Uh, so this was like, I don't remember what they were. I think it was from control of the presidency and then flare beat him the next night. I believe that's what happened. So flare beats him the next night of nitro to become president. And, that later turns into his bizarre heel turn where he starts yeah. calling himself the president of the United States instead of WCW. Yeah. Uh, very bizarre stuff here. Uh, then we have the semi-man event, DDP defeating the giant at this point uh, in NWO Hollywood, but also out of his way out of the company in 1245. He would jump to WWF only a month and a half later. Uh, and then we have the main event. There's a match we got again, the main event, the WCW world heavyweight title, no DQ match. Kevin Nash defeats Goldberg in eleven twenty. So another very inf- infamous match here for very obvious reasons. So Goldberg. A, to be fair, or I should say, in an announced no disqualification match, which is yeah. probably important context for some of what happened. <laughs> uh, Goldberg's streak at this point was supposedly one seventy three and zero. Uh, that was quite inflated, apparently, uh, which was also very stupid on WWE's part. It's like. Fans loved the streak until they realized it was fucking fake. And suddenly those signs with the numbers suddenly started disappearing, you know, compared to before. Right. Cause your sign would be wrong when you get to the building <laughs> and you're like, what the hell? Uh, I remember Chris Jericho made a great joke about it once where he was like, what does stepping on bugs count for the streak? It's like, where is he getting some of these? Cause he'd be like 52 one right. week and then 63 the next week. Uh, not as absurd as Sid's. I was going to say, I didn't know you said you made it more absurd with Sid. But, uh. <laughs> Where it's like everybody he touched was counted as a win. Uh, 
Uh, Nash won the World War III Battle Royal to earn this title shot. He was super over as a babyface at this point. Uh, yeah, as totally. the leader, the leader of NWO Wolfpack. Yeah, again, the NWO those... Wolfpack as a whole was over super huge. So like they had messed up the previous year, then they stumbled into Goldberg and NWO Wolfpack, and I was like, all right, cool, they've got this great opportunity to make up for their mistake last year. <laughs> and they're like, well, anyway, uh, yes, but given what's going to happen, you know, I feel like people don't even remember how over Nash was. So they they didn't just turf Goldberg's streak here. They also turfed the Wolfpack because, of course, Nash, you know, a a little eight days later, he turns heel again in the even more infamous finger poke of doom on the January 4th Nitro. So that set up basically the final version of the original NWO. Right. Uh, Killed two their two hottest products in one night, essentially, or one one, week. Yeah, one week. So that sets up the very ill-fated NWO elite where they, you know, merge the two and uh, Hogan and all the other heel, like top members of the Hollywood unit started wearing the black and red. So obviously the black and red wasn't cool anymore. I mean, part of the reason why the bl- people like the black and red is because it's like, oh, now I can support the NWO, but I don't have to support Hulk Hogan, who right. is the biggest heel in the company and, you know, who's been on top for the last five fucking years and, you know, we're all sick of. So we'll get, we'll, we'll, so now we can be cool in the NWO and not fucking be Hogan fans. And they're like, well, what if we took that away from you? <laughs> like, we just put Hogan in the black and red too. Fuck right. you. <laughs> also, I, if I remember, it led to some like just really weird black and red outfits from Hogan, like <laughs> flannel shirts tied around his waist while wearing jeans and stuff. It was and they just... had like the Hell's Angels with them on these nitro sets. Yeah, it was, so, it was the opposite of cool. Yes, definitely. Uh, and this that the NWO elite it very quietly petered out after just a few months. It was basically over by like April or May. Yeah. If I remember uh, right, even like, you know, for not that this, not trying to make excuses for WCW because Lord knows they don't deserve any, but they even set up that, yeah, the big NWA lead angle. And I feel like half the wrestlers involved with it got injured in the oh, next that's few true months. Too. Lex Luger got injured. Hogan got injured. Although the severity of his injury depends on who you ask. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think Scott Hall got injured. I don't know. A lot of people got injured. Um, we get a very strange introduction line from Buffer here. Uh, quote, although he is a native from Detroit, Michigan, his accomplishment and glory from professional wrestling make him a citizen of the world. <laughs> I uh, noted that exact same one. I'm what so glad f- you mentioned it. What the fuck does that even mean? We are talking about Kevin has- Nash, to be clear, but. Right. Yeah. No, he always has the stupidest filler material, but even that one caught me off guard. I was like, what the <laughs> hell did I just hear? I rewound it quick. I was like, no, I heard that correctly. He's a citizen of the world because of his success, his accomplishment and glory. What the fuck are you talking So does he not have to have a passport? He can just walk up and be like, my accomplishment and glory from professional wrestling makes me a citizen of the world. So you can right. let True me know. global citizen. Kevin <laughs> What like where did he come up with that one? I feel like some of these, like you say, make no sense. But you can kind of see where where he got it right. from. This one, I have no idea. He's just like, I got it, Kevin Nash. <laughs> his success and his accomplishment and glory have made him a citizen of the world. Like I, I really want to know that. Like I want to sit Michael Buffer down and be like, my dude, where the <laughs> fuck did this one come from? Please tell me. I mean, he has oh, no, I have no idea what I'm talking about now. But I, we gotta go back to '97 and be there. I mean, we'll rewind the tape for him. It is available on the <laughs> not award-winning Peacock Network, and we'll show it to him. Yeah, I'm just like, what the fuck, buddy. I also, and this is a small point, 
I should say. And it, I mean, and like you said, Nash was over like gangbusters. So obviously they knew what they were doing. But to this day, I still find it funny that because a part I think of his overness was that he switched to much like a much more serious ass kicker gimmick kind of at this point. It's how he won World War Three. He was still just dominating. And yet during the ring entrances, um, including this one, like just still that huge emphasis on the big, sexy nickname. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, like, you know, he's portraying this big ass kicker. And it's like big, sexy. And it's like, oh, that kind of undercuts the image to me he originally said call himself that as a joke which is like right exactly nicknames that get caught on uh because i remember the promo where i remember the promo where he first called himself that like he yeah he came back so basically he got knocked it was at the spring they used to do that uh that spring breakout episode right yep he got knocked in the water okay uh, during some match i don't remember the match was he comes back either a week later or two weeks later suddenly has blonde hair instead of brown hair and he comes out and says he swam through the gulf of mexico uh actually (laughs) knocked into the water and came out and realized he's big sexy i'm just like what the fuck and it's (laughs) dumb but it worked for his character at the time because that was kind of a part of the charm of his character but then as he started pivoting that was was that was weirdly the start of his baby's face turn. Yes. <laughs> Declaring. Yeah, that that's a good point. That he's swearing through the Gulf of Mexico. And now he's big sexy. But yeah, I don't know. It's just maybe the weirdest baby face turn of all time. Yes. But WCW definitely was not boring in this period. That is for sure. Uh, but yes, this match, on the other hand, pretty boring. Exactly what you would expect. Lots and lots of brawling and punching and such. Just not much to it at all, really. Uh, Goldberg does finally hit the big spear on Nash after ducking a big boot. The crowd does go wild. Now, was I crazy? Were some of them chanting Goldberg sucks right before that? I could just want to hear that chant. You might have. I'm not sure. I thought... So going into this match, my memory was that the fans had turned on Goldberg a little bit and so and that Nash was really hot. So I was expecting him to be the overwhelming favorite. But... I feel like it was actually a split crowd. Yeah, it was 50-50. Yeah, and in like a cool way, not the manufactured, like sometimes you see at wrestling audience ways where they take turns chanting for both. It was, you know, it felt like half the building was just there rooting Goldberg and half was rooting Nash. Uh, That's what I took from it. Yeah. Um, So he goes to lift Nash up for the jackhammer after the spear. Nash hits a blatant low blow right in front of the ref, uh, but it's no DQ, so nothing the ref can do. Uh, both guys are down, and then we get some more boring offense from Nash. But Goldberg, though, he suddenly counters a front suplex with a spinning neckbreaker from that position, almost like the Tanahashi twist and shadow. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. And then he follows up with a nice little head and arm suplex. That gets a two count. Uh, he does some kind of very weird, I don't know what the fuck this was. He basically jumps in the air like he's going to do a drop kick. But then oh, yeah, turns- that weird like spinning Kit, front kick or something almost. Um, I yeah. yeah. We need a Bischoff announcing this match. He would have explained to us <laughs> what it was. He would have given us the karate name, <laughs> right? So, um, but yeah, then uh, then the run-ins start right after that. First, we get Disco Inferno, who was doing a gimmick at the time that he was wanted to join the Wolfpack and they wouldn't let him. Goldberg takes him out quickly. Then Bam Bam Bigelow runs in, who was going to be in our next match, uh, and Goldberg also takes him out quickly. But then Scott Hall shows up on the apron. Disguised as a vent staff. One of these, for some yeah. reason, is one of these things I'll never forget. For you know, like as far as like I have a really clear image of it from watching as a kid, Scott Hall suddenly appearing on the apron in this right. yellow event shirt with the cattle prod. Right. And to be clear, we need to use the word or term disguised 
very <laughs> carefully here because it was yeah he was wearing a yellow security polo shirt but otherwise still had the toothpick behind the ear the hair all great stuff yeah like, it looked like it looked like basically like oh everybody around would be like wow scott hall really did fall down hard i guess and now he's a security guard everybody right. was scott hall. it's like wow the sky is in air quotes it's true Yes. Um, but yes, he gives Goldberg the infamous cattle prod shot. Right. Goldberg does this ridiculous sell job for her. Yep. He falls down like he just got a fucking heart attack. Uh, and the idea here is that Nash never saw it. Uh, we'll find out eight days later. It was a conspiracy all along. Yep. But he hits the jackknife to pin Goldberg. With Goldberg still spasming after the jackknife. <laughs> uh, and Nash wins his first WWE World title that he will hand over to Hulk Hogan eight days later for reasons that will never be adequately explained. Uh, that also, of course, ends the Goldberg streak. So yeah, this was not a good match at all. Uh, I gave it one star. Kind of cool Goldberg spots make it one star worth, but uh, it was definitely not a match you'd call anything even resembling good. It was pretty damn bad. So Yeah, um, just a couple things to add to it. One thing I did want to point out, because I thought it was so weird in this spot and for the Goldberg character, um, you know, his whole character from pretty much to get go, uh, maybe two, three matches into his run. It's like, he's just this insanely intense guy. And like, he gets into his intense zone before the matches. And that's why, you know, they film him backstage and walk into the ring. And he was doing that as you would expect for this match. And then they have him stop in the hallways while coming down to the ring while in the full zone for the match to sign an autograph for the kid or a kid. <laughs> I was like, that's really weird. I don't think the Goldberg character would do that. I think if anything, he would push the damn kid out of his way because he is ready to fight. So I thought that was really weird uh, as well. Um, I, I think you hit most of the main things in the match. Um I thought, yeah, Goldberg had some impressive spots. There was another one where he looked to basically easily throw Nash up onto his shoulders, almost like as a deadlift. It was just like, damn, sometimes you forget how physically strong Goldberg was at this time. Um, but most of the match, unfortunately, was really boring. Uh, there was a weird segment near the opening where the exchange submissions and Goldberg did his typical leg lock he worked in and it, lo it looked okay. But then Nash, or I remember Nash did a cross arm breaker of all things. And just seeing Kevin Nash use a cross arm breaker seemed really weird. And yeah. It, and then you had the finish and that was a mess. But before the finish, it really felt like they were going for a colliding, like superpowers epic. And the crowd, to be fair, to be fair to them, the crowd was treating it as such. But um, for myself, it just felt like neither worker um, was capable of carrying the other to that type of match. And so instead, it just led a boring exchange, or to me, boring exchanges that didn't seem to be leading to much. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, just not really a, a good match and then led to some absolutely awful WCW storytelling. And for various reasons, they just were never able, able to get Goldberg back fully on track after this. Yeah. Um, and I they went... This killed Goldberg, this killed Nash, yeah. this killed, killed everybody involved. So. Yep. So yeah, I went a star and a half. So very slightly more than you, but just uh really disappointing match, unfortunately. I mean, they if they really wanted to do Nash heel turn, they should just had Goldberg retain and then like have, you know, Nash turn on him and cost him the title against Hogan or something. And that would have skipped the entire stupid finger poke of doom that like, you know, really just the finger poke of doom, you know, it's one of these things where it's like, yeah, it was stupid, but it's one, it, it like really, 
I, I don't think it's possible to overstate how much it insulted people who have been following WWE right. for a long time. Yeah, that belt meant something to. I mean, th- it, it just felt like a different level of ho- stupid and horrible to people. Yeah. So, and know, just completely yeah. undercut Nash's character as well. Like, yeah. why would he do this? He had no. Reason. He had no never explained a good yeah. reason for him wanting to do this and make himself second fiddle to Hogan again. I mean, all he had to, all he had to do if you if you do it the other way, but Goldberg winning clean here and then having Nash turn on Goldberg and cost him the title against Hogan, it's like okay, that makes sense. He's mad he lost to Nash. Yeah, or he's mad he lost to Goldberg. Yeah, he's but frustrated. They, he realized he can't beat Goldberg on his own. This is what he had to do. You know, he wanted yeah. his revenge on Goldberg. This was his way of doing it. Like simple but, storytelling works and rest. But they were in like, but but all it came down to is like Nash really wanted to take the streak, and the deal he made with Hogan to take the streak it, behind the scenes was, yep. you know, I'll beat him and then I'll we'll do the fucking finger poke and you'll get the belt. And it's like this is where backstage politics really hurt, right? You know, Not the on-screen product and really hurt what people were, you know, were watching at the time. So, unfortunately, so we move forward now. We skip Russo's year. We go to 2000, the final Starcade, uh, back at the MCI Center, but you can see the damage they've done for 99-2000. This show drew a crowd of 6,596 and did a buy rate of 0.11. So thank you to the other buy rates we've been talking about. 0.11. That was probably like, I don't know, like 75,000 people or something. Yeah. I don't, like, that was prob- like, there was a site I remember that had that broke it down by people. Let me say WCW, pay-per-view. By, and while you do that, like these. again, just to connect the maps with people, that's almost 17 times less buys than the show just two or three years earlier. Yeah. So the estimate for this for 99 or for Starcade 2000, yeah, so it would be 50,000 buys. So I was even too high oh, at 75,000. Yeah. And, the, you know, 98, you know, would have been, uh, you know, 460,000 buys. So yeah. 410,000 more. And 97 would have been 700,000. So just you can brutal. see just how, how far and how fast they fell here, all the way down to 50,000 buys. And that's, you know, this actually was a bad number for the time, even. Um, the ones before this, you know, New Blood Rising did 85,000, Fall Brawl did 75, Halloween Havoc did 70, uh, and the Mayhem in November did 55. But, you know, things recovered a yeah. little bit for Sin. Back to eighty thousand in January, which was the infamous uh, Sid breaks his leg show. Yep. And then Super Bowl Revenge did seventy thousand in February, and then Greed, the final pay per view in history, did fifty thousand again. So mm. uh, there you go. But yeah, this show, you know, definitely in the dying days here of the company before they WWF would buy them in March. Uh, it starts out with a three way ladder match. Boy, I'm mad we didn't get this. Uh, three count: mm-hmm. Shane Helms and Shannon Moore. Be Evan Courageous and Jamie Noble and the Young Dragons, Kazayashi and, and uh, Jimmy Yang in thirteen seventeen. I mean, I I don't love ladder matches, but I'm sure it's still the best match on the show by a wide margin. Oh, easily. Uh, then we have Lance Storm beating the Cat in seven twenty four. Terry Funk defeating Crowbar to retain the Hardcore Title in nine seventeen. Wouldn't mind getting that either, honestly. Just see Terry Funk. Uh, he wins the Hardcore Title from him. Then we get Chronic against Big Vito and Reno. Uh, they don't even have a match time here on Cage Match. I'm sure that was quite bad. Then we got the match we got here, which was Mike Awesome beating Bam Bam Bigelow in an ambulance match in 835. Uh, there's still a lot more matches to that. The U.S. title, General Ruction, uh, of course, it's Bill DeMont, <laughs> defeating the franchise by DQ. Could not pin Shane Douglas in 835. Then we got a match I remember being pretty fun. The six-man tag street fight, 
Jeff Jarrett and the Harris brothers beating the filthy animals, uh, Kidman Conan and Rey Mysterio in 1235. Uh, then we get the world tag titles, DDP and Kevin Nash beating Chuck Palumbo and Sean Stasiak to win the belts. I believe the second month in a row, they ran that match with that finish with them winning the belts. So, <laughs> kind of weird. Then the semi-main event, this was during the period where Goldberg uh, had to win all of his matches or yep. else he'd be fired again. Uh, and he would eventually be fired. He beat Lex Luger in 12 minutes in a no DQ match. Do you remember how this, how this eventually ends? I honestly do not. Okay. This I'll never forget for the rest of my life. This was one of the dumbest angles I've ever seen. So I don't remember what show it was. It might have been the next month or it might have been two months later. But Goldberg is fate. I think it's the next month. I think it's at uh, what, Sin or whatever the hell they call it. So Goldberg is facing uh, Luger and Buff Bagwell. So Buff uh, Buff turned on Goldberg at the end of this match to join up at Luger. And Ric Flair, before the show, introduces Goldberg to his fr- a friend of his, including a small ch- and the friend's child. So a small child. Goldberg goes over to the child during this main event when uh, Luger and Buff kind of go after him. And the kid maces Goldberg. So Goldberg gets turned on by a small child. And then that's how they beat him and send him packing because he's fired since he lost a match. I still don't remember that at all. So that was Rick that was Rick Flair's heel turn. That was Flair's heel turn to join up with uh with uh Steiner and Luger and all them to form the Magnificent Seven. A small child maced Goldberg. Now I will yeah. say though, if they would have used my idea of Goldberg pushing the kid out of his way at the previous <laughs> arcade, then it all would have made sense as long form storytelling. But yeah. alas, they did not. So uh the, the child turn. Then the main event, the Stott Signer beat Sid Vicious in 1015 to retain the WW title. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if there's a lot there you would have preferred to get. Maybe, like I said, the six-man no, tag really. and the opener. That's about it. Yeah, the opener for sure. The six-man tag, the Filthy Animals were super fun at the time. Yeah. Um, that's probably about it, to be honest. Uh, so I couldn't even tell you what the hell was going on with this match. Uh you know, Awesome was still in his 1970s gimmick at this point. Yeah. Uh, he was about to turn heel and join Team Canada a couple weeks later. So if uh, I remember January, right... January 3rd, Nitro. I think this was set up because um, on a Nitro sometime before this, they did a lethal lottery tournament throughout the Nitro, and Awesome and Bigelow were a tag team, and they lost I and then turned on each other. Now, the pre-match video did not tell us that. They just no, no, quickly showed... referenced any of that, to be clear. <laughs> they quickly showed the two of them attacking each other a few times, and that was it. Uh, very bizarre. But Awesome, he, so he comes out here, he's in his 70s gimmick attire, but he strips the attire off before the match. I guess it's supposed to be symbolic. The announcers are also talking about how he could be a future world champion. Uh, maybe he could have been before you guys made him the fat check thriller. That seventies guy, like, oh, like this seventies gimmick is stupid. It's not even close to as dumb as gimmick WCW though, since they no. made him the fucking fat chick thriller before this. Man, talk about misusing a guy. Right. It's for people that didn't watch her. I mean, it was just amazing how much awesome was over right before he jumped to WCW. Um, largely through him and Tanaka just absolutely killing each other in ECW. Yeah. But, I mean, he was over. He had a falling. He had an aura to him. Like he's a and, big guy, right? He, who can move super, like crazy. Um, he looks it, like a million bucks. I yeah. mean, he's, he's a great look. He's you know he looks like a you know good looking guy. He, like yeah. as a classic wrestler look. Right. Happy to take big bumps for people. Happy to take big bumps. I mean, he is everything you want. The only thing that doesn't have is the promo ability. Really, like he does right. sound. Which you can work around. Exactly. (laughs) 
So it's like that of all the stuff, that's the easiest thing to work around, especially for like a heel. And they just were like, what if you make him fuck fat women? Yeah. Uh, what if you make him a seventies guy? Yeah. Within like just a f- couple months of his debut too. It was just almost immediately like, yeah, let's just make him infatuated with um, oversized women. women. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not what I would do with my Gotham. I have to say, uh, but this match though, just a lot of very dull brawling to a completely dead crowd. Uh, you can hear some, you can hear like some, like WCW had a lot of fake crowd noise around this time. And you could always tell when it was fake because like the crowd is clearly sitting there doing nothing. And that definitely happened during this match. Um, you know, it just, this is, I could not believe it. Like if you told me, John, how long was this match? I would have guessed like 15 minutes at least. Like I can't believe there's only eight and a half minutes. It just dragged on and on and on. Uh, awesome. Did take a nice back body drop through a table at one point. That was a nice little bump. Yeah. Uh, and then Bam Bam, they fight to the ambulance. Bam Bam rips off some very fake-looking plastic safety lights off the top of the ambulance. Mm-hmm. What's really funny is Tony's yelling about how they're bolted how down sh- the ambulance, yeah. but you can hear like Velcro or glue <laughs> or something like peeling off as he's. Peeling. I'm like, how fucking stupid do you think we are, Mr. Tony Schiavone? Uh, awesome. Then gets the lights from him though. Hits him with hits Bam Bam with it twice. And Bam Bam falls through the very obviously gimmicked roof of the ambulance. Did not look very impressive at all, especially once they showed the other shot. Where you yeah, no, I was going to know that. It was actually, it was the replay that killed it. Like, it didn't look great, but it looked fine. But then they decided to show it on replay like half a dozen times or something. And like on There's almost all of the replays, it's from like a higher angle. Yeah. And you can see that it's just like a particle board that they had put over the roof spot that he fell through. I mean, there was, there was one angle in particular they never should have showed because it really showed. Yeah, no, it was just brutal. Right it's like, yeah. how do you show that on TV? Yeah, like maybe don't show that one, you idiots. I don't understand. Like if they had not shown that angle, it would have looked, looked fine. Right. Especially since uh, it was like the, like, honestly, like the four for fifth replay at that point, like it was in the can. They knew what it looked like. It's not like it was a live shot. And they're like, yeah, yeah. let's show that one as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this was a, another nothing match and a long series of them on this episode. One star for a couple decent bumps, but another pretty fucking bad match and ended things on a sour note, I guess. But look, that's what the randomizer gave me. What do you want me to do? You know, that's why, that's why we do the randomizer. <laughs> Could be good. It could be bad. And boy, other than Johnny B. Bad and Art Anderson, there's a lot of bad on the show. Yeah. Um, don't have much really to add. Um, one thing I'll say, Bigelow was very obviously, I think, in fairly rough shape in this match. Oh, um, he looked like he could barely move. Yeah. And in fairness to him, I think this was maybe five or six months after he severely burned like a lot of his body, saving a family from a house fire. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I assume he probably healed pretty painfully for that. And you can tell even by his standards, he was a bit heavier in this match than what he had been for a lot of his career. So um, probably shouldn't have, maybe shouldn't have been back in the ring at this point, but so be it. Um, I did think one part was kind of funny. Like at first I thought it was interesting. They wrestled right away back towards the ambulance, which was like, cool, that makes logical sense. You win the match by getting someone in the ambulance. Of course you would fight there quick. I'm glad they're not wasting too much time there. Um, but then later in the match, Awesome made his way back to the ring. And then, uh, which I was like, oh, well, that kind of defeats that good point, I thought. But then the announcer started talking about like how important strategy is in a match like this. And I'm like, 
I don't know. It's a mid-card ambulance match. Like, is strategy really that important? So Beat the other guy up and put him in the ambulance. So right. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of strategy to that. Uh, but I thought it was funny they harped on that. Um, and then, yeah, just the finish was what it was. Um, I gave it two stars for a couple of spots. Um, I did appreciate Bigelow punching through a window on the ambulance. And hopefully this one was gimmicked on, like, the one Goldberg punched through. And um, it looked yeah. like it was. It looked like yes, it, it looked like it was. Mm. Um, and then yeah, it, I'm not trying I'm, to be clear. I'm not trying to hate on them gimmicking things, but like no, no, please just, do for the safety yeah, of the wrestlers. Like I just want you to just don't show camera shots that make it look completely stupid. Right. And in fairness, I thought the window punch looked yeah, window much punch better was. than the other two spots that we yeah. discussed that looked a lot worse. Um, yeah. Like if they had not shown that one camera shot of him falling through the top of the ambulance from so high that you could see it was clearly breakaway. It right. looked fine. You know, I mean, you yeah. could have tell. I mean, you could tell it was not a real ambulance roof. Right. Like you would not have had that visual proof. No, it would have been fine. Right. Yeah. Um, so. And then, yeah, my last note is just, um, so you hear the ambulance sirens as um, they start transitioning to the next segment. And like, I just quickly jotted to myself, you know, it feels appropriate after, you know, discussing WCW a few three times throughout the year that the final thing I hear on a broadcast is freaking ambulance sirens going <laughs> off. <laughs> it does feel appropriate. That is for sure. All right. Uh, anything you want to plug before we get out of here, Matt? Um, not to plug, but I will say again, since this is the last one of the year, I decided to go back through my notes and I know you're going to be super excited about this. Um, I'm, I actually put together my five best matches that wow. we watched okay. from these three shows we've done together. Um, just to emphasize how much lady luck really did not help us out with these. So, um, just super quick, if you will bear with it. Um, yeah, I had Eddie Guerrero versus Dean Malenko from Starcade 97 <laughs> as the fifth best match at a whole wow. three and a quarter stars. Uh, Vader versus Nikita Koloff at Halloween Havoc 92 as the fourth best match. Yeah, also at good. three and a quarter stars. I remember liking that. I think I liked it yeah. more than you even. I think you did. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, one of our, maybe our second biggest disagreement match. Um, number three, I had Randy Savage versus Ric Flair from Super Brawl 6 at a whole three and a half stars. Yeah, that I did not like at all. Uh, and number two, Rick Martel versus Booker T from Super Brawl 8 at three and a half stars. That was great. That was great. Yep. And then a match that if you would have told me at the beginning of this project would have been my favorite. I would have just laughed it off as complete lunacy. The Nasty Boys versus the Steiner Brothers from <laughs> Halloween Havoc 1990 at four stars. There you go. I think you were higher on that than me, but it was good. I was. Um, yeah. And, you know, I still stand behind that rating, though. And yeah. maybe it's just compared to the rest of the stuff we watched together. But that go. was a damn good match. All right, folks. Uh, you don't want to plug your Twitter or anything, though? Uh, you can find me at Archiving Matt if you're there interested you on Twitter. There you go. So we'll be back in two weeks, like I mentioned earlier, for the uh, the Omakase uh, Tokyo Dome Retro Roulette Volume 3. So we'll see what random Tokyo Dome matches we get this time. Uh, and then after that, the big awards episode on January 1st. So definitely tune in for that. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at WrestleOmakase. Uh, wrestling would not fit. And I want to thank you as always for listening. And we will see you next time. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.